everybody. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'd like to welcome back to Retina Synthesis, Dr. Tom Chula. Tom, how are you? I'm great, Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. Tom is uh, Chief Medical Officer and Chief Development Officer at ClearSide Biomedical. And ClearSide released recently some very exciting results using superchoroidal delivery with a tyrosinase kinase inhibitor for treatment of neovascular AMD with excellent safety results and some very interesting efficacy data. And we'd like to talk about that today. Well, again, Carmen, thanks for having me. Uh, can I share some slides? Yes. All right. Um, all right. Can you see the uh, presentation mode? Looks excellent. Good. Okay, great. Um, so let me let me uh, uh, talk a little bit about some of the basic properties of supercortical delivery first. Um, for those who may not be uh, as familiar with supercortical delivery, um, so what we're doing is we're we injected the pars plana with the microneedle, and you can see how the injectate flows posteriorly and circumferentially, and that allows us to target the chororetinal tissues uh, with drug, and then uh, compartmentalize the drug to that area, uh, minimizing exposure to the anterior segment. This is actually a clinical trial patient undergoing an injection. Other than the drape, it's, it's pretty standard, um, uh, very similar to an individual injection. You can see a sterile lid speculum, there's betadine pulling in the eye, the plunger is being depressed. So very straightforward. Um, obviously the patient's not moving, there's not any uh, obvious signs of distress or pain. Um, and what we can do here uh, with small molecule suspensions is achieve prolonged durability. So here we show our, our standard rabbit pharmacokinetic study. And you can see we've assessed triencylmonacetinide, which is our first asset that was approved, Zypir. Uh, we've assessed excitinib, which is the asset we'll talk about momentarily, as well as a complement inhibitor and plasma calicone inhibitor. In all cases, we get prolonged durability out to the duration of the experiment to 90 days. And what drives durability is the particle size in these suspensions. Um, as well as the relative insolubility. Essentially, we, we, we inject into the supercortical space. Um, the injectate flows posteriorly and circumferentially. The aqueous phase is absorbed, absorbed fairly quickly, and that leaves all these, um, these drug particles um, in the supercortical space, and drug essentially slowly dissolves from these particles into the adjacent tissues. So is the suspension proprietary? It is. It's, it's, it's not... Um, it is. It's, it's a fairly basic suspension, but but again, what drives the durability is the particle size um, and, the, and the relative insolubility. For trying cetonide, our, our first asset, Zypir, you know, we have a very specific particle size distribution. We add surfactant. Um, this has all been tested for the microinjector. The uh, injecting physician needs to feel for loss of resistance, so we need to maximize that tactile feedback once they have loss of resistance, they know they're in the supercortical space and they can advance uh, the plunger. So there are some um, key um, aspects of the formulation, including particle size distribution and surfactant. These are some um, uh, images that we've published in the past showing opening of the supercortical space. Um, in the upper image is acute opening of the supercortical space anteriorly. You can see on the OCT um, denoted by the, uh, the, the blue arrow how the space is opened anteriorly. And then posteriorly, um, the space is opened a, a small amount as well. Again, these have all been published. What drives the injectate posteriorly is a pressure gradient. There's a natural pressure gradient where the, the, um, the interocular pressure is greater 
than the anterior suprachoroidal space pressure, which in turn is greater than the um, posterior suprachoroidal space pressure. So the injectate just flows uh, naturally down this pressure gradient towards the macula. So that's a little bit about you know, the basics of, of suprachoroidal delivery. Um, I'll talk about CLSAX next. Um, this is a, a very high level overview of what we found. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm gonna go to the next slide here. This is a very high level overview of what we found uh, with uh, CLSAX. This is a, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. We found a pristine safety profile. Um, we've had excellent durability in the, in the parent study, OASIS, out to three months, there was a 73% reduction in treatment burden. And the extension study, uh, which includes most of the patients in the parent study, um, out to six months with interim data, we had a greater than 90% reduction in treatment burden. And then we've seen biologic uh, effect with respect to stable visual acuity, stable central subfield thickness. And I have um, a few OCT cases I can share. Just to back up a little bit, the, the idea behind this is that tyrosine kinase inhibitors are pan-VEGF inhibitors. So you can see on this cartoon on the right that ILEA, Lucentis, and Avastin uh, work essentially by binding VEGFA. Um, however, when you bind VEGFA, you have upregulation of C and D. Uh, and C and D can uh, stimulate the, the VEGF2 receptor, which mediates angiogenesis. With the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, we're basically switching off all the receptors. And so we can, we can circumvent uh, uh, this problem and potentially uh, uh, bypass a, a ceiling of efficacy. We've chosen excitinib because it's one of the most highly potent tyrosine kinase inhibitors that's been tested in ophthalmology. And it has excellent ocular cell biocompatibility compared to other TKIs. So it may have some intrinsic safety benefits. When we inject it suprachoroidally, you can see on the left in our standard rabbit model, uh, we compare suprachoroidal delivery with individual delivery. And in that uppermost orange box, we get 11 times the levels in the retina, RPE, and choroid when we go suprachoroidally versus individually. And conversely, we get three one thousandths the levels when we go um, suprachoroidally versus individually in the vitreous. And, up, and in the aqueous and, and plasma, we're at or below the limit of detection. So we have a really great um, ability to target uh, the affected retinal tissues, which may provide some efficacy benefits and compartmentalize away from the front of the eye for, for, for some potential safety benefits. On the right is, um, is another rabbit study where we look at um, durability. And you can see um, out to day 182, uh, in basically in the supercortical space in dark blue and in the retina in light blue, we have <clears throat> levels that are several log orders higher than the IC50 for the VEGF receptor two. So this gives us confidence that we can, we can achieve durability in the range of six months. And then the other interesting thing about this uh, bar graph on the right is that it also shows the compartmentalization effect. So the highest levels are in the, the dark blue um, in, in the supercortical space, basically, and then next in the retina and, and lower levels in the vitreous. So, so, the, so the basic premise is that we're marrying a very highly potent tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, with the potential benefits of supercortical delivery with respect to targeting, compartmentalization, and durability. So um, the trial design was a single um, uh, injection, open-label study. All patients had active disease at screening. They were all treatment experienced, but they had persistent activity at screening confirmed by a reading center. They got a flibercept at screening. A month later, they get CLSAX, and then they're followed out essentially to six months when we include the extension study. Um, and we get this question all the time, you know, why did we... Uh, 
why do we design the study to enroll these heavily anti-VEGF treatment experience wet AMD patients? Well, we wanted to do this because um, we wanted to minimize the risk of a false signal of biologic effect. In other words, if we have treatment experience patients and they're inactive, um, you know, we, we don't know how needy they were for treatment. In this case, they're treatment experience patients who are active on screening confirmed by a reading center. So we know they need persistent treatment. And this allows us to potentially de-risk future clinical studies. So again, um, the safety profile was pristine. There were no SAEs, there were no treatment emergent adverse events related to the study treatment, no dose limiting toxicities, no adverse events related to inflammation, vasculitis or vascular occlusion, no floaters, detachment, endophthalmitis or IOP events. In terms of the um, uh, durability, we saw excellent treatment burden reduction. When we look at um, in, in the, the average monthly, monthly injections before CLSAX administration versus after, um, and when we look at uh, basically all therapies versus per protocol criteria rescue therapies, um, there was a 73 to 100% reduction in treatment burden in cohorts three and four, the higher dose ones. This is a, um, a swim lane plot of treatments uh, before and during the study. The column of red dots um, represents the, uh, the flibercep injection at screening. Everything to the left of that is their six month prior treatment history. The green column of dots is the um, CLSAX injection administered supercoroidally. And then we can see all the visits. And again, um, the six month data is interim data. So this is the, uh, the follow up through October 27th. And what you see here in, in cohorts three and four, the higher doses, the 0.5 and one milligram dose, to month four, eight of 10, um, patients who made it to month four um, made it without uh, requiring additional therapy. Seven of eight uh, made it to month five without requiring additional therapy. And three of four made it to month six without requiring additional therapy. So, so we think this really demonstrates the, the potential uh, durability of this treatment. Um, what I just showed you were all the therapies, and these are the additional therapies per protocol criteria. So, so it's an even better um, profile when we look at the patients who were treated per protocol criteria. When we look at the supplemental anti-VEGF injection free rate up to uh, each visit in cohorts three and four, um, again, we see a really excellent profile. Um, this really demonstrates the potential for durability with this asset. Um, some more information on treatment burden reduction, this time out to six months. And basically, we had a 90 to 100% reduction in treatment burden in cohorts uh, three and four. When we look at um, best corrected visual acuity change from screening, we can see it's quite stable. Um, at month six, the, because this is interim data, um, the, the sample size decreases meaningfully. We're down to four patients on the left and three patients on the right that have made it to month six. And you can see that the error bars cross the, the, the zero no change line. So, so stable um, visual acuity overall. When we look at CST, Again, these are smaller uh, sample sizes as we get out and there's more variability. Um, but if we look at the overall mean, the, the, the CST appears to be quite stable. And then finally, I wanna follow up with a, um, <clears throat> with a case. And Carmen, you're the, uh, the father of OCTs, so I, I think you'll like this case. Um, this is uh, cohort three, subject two. This patient had 89 prior anti-VEGF injections. And so you can see in the upper left, um, they show up at screening with the best corrective visual acuity of, of 75 or about a 20 over 32, um, a CST of 265. Uh, you can see there's a fibrovascular PED, there's subfovial fluid. 
Um, they receive a flibercep at screening and uh, one over to the right at baseline. We can see that the subfoveal fluid Im improves, but actually persists to some extent. The visual acuity is stable at 73. At this baseline visit, they receive CLSAX suprachoroidally. And we can see that they're maybe a tiny bit worse at month one. They're the same at month two. But if we look at the lower left at month three, the subfoveal fluid begins to improve meaningfully. Um, the visual acuity is stable at 75 uh, letters. And at month four, the subfoveal fluid essentially resolves. Um, visual acuity stable at 74. And what's really interesting, the OCT looks better four months after CLSAX than one month after um, a flibercept. So, and that's immediately above it at baseline. And then at month five, the fluid begins to return. And at month six, they required additional therapy. But this, I think this is a, a really nice example of a biologic effect in a, in a treatment experienced um, anti-VEGF sub-responder. Any comments on that? You're the OCT expert. Do you like that case? Well, I think it's uh, what what's impressive about it is it really shows that the TKI is working, uh, which has been really the question, the, the powerful efficacy of the TKIs has been questioned. But here it shows that it really is working. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Um, I, I have more cases when I, you know, this is kind of a, this is a shortened um, presentation, um, but I just really wanted to hit the highlights for you and for, for the listeners. Um, and I'll just summarize here and, and, and happy to discuss further. Um, but I wanted to summarize what we found um, in the, the parent study, the three-month OASIS study, and in the interim analysis uh, of the extension study. Um, so again, with, with respect to safety, we, we found an excellent safety profile at all doses and time points. And, and we feel that this has some competitive advantages because um, excitinib is a well-characterized small molecule. It's already been approved for renal cell carcinoma. And, and being a small molecule is less risk for inflammation than a novel biologic agent. Um, there's no need for an operating room setting because this administration supercortically is, is, is office-based. There's no risk of any implant migration. There's no risk of very low risk of any vitreous floaters because we're injecting behind the retina. And, and this and the supercoidal injection procedure has been commercially accepted by the retina community because it's already, we've already had launch of Zypir. In terms of durability, <clears throat> we saw um, great signs of durability, um, a greater than 73% reduction in the parent study and a greater than, a greater than 90% reduction um, from the uh, extension study interim data. Um, and we think that this um, level of durability compares favorably to other current and investigational intravitreally injected agents. Um, and, 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 and we feel that uh, this has a durability effect that actually compares quite favorably to other extended release TKI formulations that are currently being assessed. And finally, uh, with respect to biologic effect, we saw a stable BCBA, CST, and I have other cases that, are, that I presented on a webcast a, a few weeks ago. Um, but, but we feel that, that having the really the most potent tyrosine kinase inhibitor in wet AMD trials, um, it, it's quite differentiated from focused VEGFA blockade. And we think that targeting the affected query retinal tissues may further leverage the efficacy because we're going supercoidally. So I'm you know, happy to, to stop there and, and discuss. Um, there's a lot of aspects of this uh, that, that we can discuss. Um, what's the phase two trial going to be like? Can you... <clears throat> Are you in a position to comment about this, the study design? Um, we're still evaluating, but I wanted to go back to this slide. Um, so just to emphasize, we, we, we enrolled heavily anti-VEGF treatment experience by AMD patients. On average, they, they had, um, depending on, the, on which of the four cohorts, but 
but you know, in the mid 20 prior injections, and again, they all had active disease screening. And, and so we basically chose the most difficult patients to treat. Um, and you know, we, we we're convinced that we see uh, a biologic effect. And, and I think starting with this most difficult patient population, this gives us a lot of opportunity. So, so we could continue with this patient population. We could look at treatment the naive patients, you know, and potentially do induction treatment and then maintenance with our therapy. Um, we could look at lightly treatment experience patients. Patients have been diagnosed within the last nine months, for example, um, and have been, been injected, you know, two or three times in the past and, and, and that show a, a good response. So these are all the different po populations that have been assessed in various trials. And I think they're all open to us. We're also considering other indications like diabetic retinopathy. So we're, we're assessing um, all of our options right now. And um, we, we plan to start a phase 2B trial um, in, the, in the first quarter of next year. So how do you imagine this agent would be used in the real world? This is uh, speculative, of course. Well, you know, I think, I think other TKI companies are positioning their TKIs as maintenance therapy. And I think because we, we've seen uh, these signals in this, in this sub-responder population, we think, again, there's potential for this to be used in maybe treatment-naive patients, maybe treatment-experienced patients with inactive disease that we want to maintain, um, or, or um, you know, maybe in, in sub-responders. So I think, I think there's a lot of potential, and we're still exploring that. Uh, but we're really excited about it. I, I, I think marrying a very potent TKI with the potential benefits of supercortical delivery uh, gives us lots of options. Well, this, is, this has been a very exciting discussion, Tom. Thanks well, for thanks sharing. for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me very much.